Hello, I'm Jamie Napolo, Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Rosenstein, Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Leinenberger Comprehensive Cancer Center Comprehensive Cancer Support Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Rosenstein's research focuses on the areas where medicine and psychiatry meet. His research interests include assessing and managing suicide in the medical setting and psychosocial support for patients facing cancer. In 2017, Dr. Rosenstein was elected president of the American Psychosocial Oncology Society. He is also co-author of the group, Seven Widowed Fathers Reimagined Life, which details the challenges and triumphs of seven men who raised young children after their wives died. Today, Dr. Rosenstein joins us to talk about depression and suicidal thoughts, topics that may be very distressing but need to be discussed because many, many people report depression during and after breast cancer treatment. Dr. Rosenstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so, so very much. I'm glad to be here. So as I said, this is a little bit uh, a difficult topic, but we have had people on our discussion boards be very open about their struggles with depression and some even talk about their suicidal thoughts. So are, are there any statistics on how common both depression and suicidal thoughts are after a cancer diagnosis? Is anyone doing that research? There's actually quite a bit of research that's been done in this area, and I'll share some of the more important statistics in just a moment. But let me start by saying two general comments that that I think are important to set the stage. Uh, The first one is that there are a lot of people who are worried about talking about suicide with patients out of a fear that that may plant an idea about suicide in their minds. And, And that is an old myth and old worry that's been shown several times not to be the case, that that you don't kind of uh, introduce an idea that someone hasn't thought about. So I, I would encourage patients to talk with their care providers um, if they do have any suicidal thoughts. And we'll get into more detail of that in just a minute. And then the second point I want to make is to make a distinction between having depressive symptoms and having major depression which is a a more severe syndrome. It's completely normal and expected that anyone who is struggling with cancer is going to have symptoms of depression. Uh, Whether or not you then suffer from a syndromal depression, a major depression, uh, is, is is a very different story. So what I can tell you is that Uh, probably 20 to 30% of people who are diagnosed and treated for for cancer will have symptoms of depression, either a single symptom like feeling sad or tearful or having trouble sleeping or being worried about the future or so on. Um, And it actually does matter if you just have symptoms, but that's different from having a whole syndrome. And if you really talk about formally diagnosed major depression, that's probably more like 8, 10, 12% of patients with cancer, and it depends on what the cancer is. So it's actually higher for some cancers like central nervous system cancers, brain cancers, or head and neck cancers, or GI cancers, gastrointestinal cancers, and it tends to be a little bit lower rates for people with Um, better prognosis cancers. And so it's actually a little bit lower, more like seven, eight percent for women with breast cancer, for example. And I would assume when you talk about prognosis, 
uh, no matter what type of cancer, if it's metastatic cancer, those people would probably be more likely to have uh, major depression. I think that's a fair conclusion to draw with one important caveat, which is that this world is changing very rapidly. If we were having this conversation five years ago and we were talking about metastatic melanoma, um, I would uh, not have the idea that very many people could contemplate the prospect of cure. These days, maybe 20 upwards of 30% of people with metastatic malignant melanoma might be cured with some of the targeted treatment and immunotherapies. And so some of the new treatments are changing the conversation about metastatic cancer in ways that we couldn't have predicted just a few years ago. I wanna go back um, to how you mentioned depressive symptoms and then major depression. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that is different to the person experiencing it or how that person, would that person seem different to the people around them if they had one versus the other? Sure. I, I think that the human condition uh, um, brings with it ups and downs in everyone. Um, people um, with or without cancer in all walks of life can identify with periods of time when you feel down, sad, blue, less motivated, less interested, less um, confident in yourself and so on. So there is a normal fluctuation in mood from the low side to the upside in everyone. What happens with major depression is that it kind of takes on a life of its own at some point so that it gets bigger than the sum of the symptoms in and of themselves. So what might that look like in someone? They may really not be themselves. So for someone with a major depression, they may have trouble getting out of bed. They may have trouble concentrating, doing their work. They may be tearful all the time. They may not be able to read a book with, you know, with they, which they normally might be able to do. So that uh, patients of mine who describe what it's like to have a major depression, they talk about the physicality of it. They talk about that it feels like a, um, like a medical illness. And in many respects, it is a medical illness. It, it affects your all sorts of aspects of your physiology. And so it's the, the, the overall experience can be profoundly debilitating. And in fact, around the world, major depression accounts for, um, depending on which age group you're talking about, like the most um, disabling illnesses on the planet, even in some cases as much or more so than cancer itself or heart disease. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, has been starting to be diagnosed more and more in people who've been diagnosed with cancer. Um, does that always lead to depression? I've read that it's a risk, um, but how, how does that play into all of this as well? So post-traumatic stress disorder uh, is, um, is really a different disorder, but is co-occurring with depression very commonly. So many people who are diagnosed with PTSD will also have depressive symptoms. But PTSD, in my mind, in many people's minds, is more of an anxiety disorder. It's kind of a, 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 a 
disorder of arousal and kind of increased anxiety. You can have intrusive memories of what the trauma was. You can have a increased startle reflex. You can um, have panic attacks. You can have avoidance of certain things that will remind you of what a trauma was. Um, the PT, the post-traumatic literature in cancer is a really interesting one and it's evolving. Um, in contrast to PTSD from, let's say, the battlefield or if someone was near an earthquake or a bombing or some more discrete trauma, um, there are perhaps for most patients with cancer um, a series of traumas that may not seem quite as dramatic from the outside. And so there, I think there are a lot of people who have cancer that experience a trauma related to the cancer itself, the diagnosis and the treatments. And they may have, if not full-blown PTSD, they may have post-traumatic stress symptoms so that it's more of a limited syndrome. Now, it's good to also note that there is a growing literature and a really interesting literature on something called post-traumatic growth that um, depending on how people uh, respond to and adapt to various difficult life experiences that exist somewhere along the spectrum of trauma, there can be really important growth opportunities that happen, that people appreciate things in ways that they didn't before, that they learn that they've got more strength and more resilience and more creativity, that they cut out some of the things in their life that they used to do that maybe don't matter to them as much and they focus more on the relationships and the things that are more meaningful. And so I think it's really important to remember that there can be some some difficult symptoms, pathological symptoms that can come from the trauma of cancer and its treatment. There can also be some intra and interpersonal growth that comes from the very difficult experience of cancer. Some women on our discussion boards have talked about uh, tamoxifen and some of the other hormonal therapies have really spiraled them into depression. Um, now, it could be that it, you know, they started taking it at the same time it, as it happened, but in, in your practice, in your experience, is that a known side effect of some of these therapies? So it's a really interesting question. And at least to my mind, it's not fully decided. The way I think about it is I think that there is a signal there. And what I mean by that is I don't think of tamoxifen as a drug that predictably causes depression in all or even most patients who take it. Um, and there have been several studies that have looked for an association between tamoxifen and depression, and, and, and there hasn't been a definitive demonstration of that. Having said that, I do think that there are some individuals who are particularly vulnerable to some of the hormonal effects of tamoxifen and other medicines. So I, I, I do think that it, it's relevant for some patients, maybe a significant minority, but I wouldn't think about this as a drug that you can predictably say this is going to cause you depression in the same way that 
there are often medical or surgical reasons for women to suddenly become menopausal. Either you have a surgical removal of your ovaries or because of chemotherapy, that chemotherapy renders someone um, menopausal in terms of their hormone levels. And that's another similar and really interesting literature about whether there is whether depression is associated with the menopause or not. And I think the short answer is it is in some women and it's not in every woman. And so I, I think that, you know, we can't really say all or nothing on this one, but it has to be looked at on a case by case basis. Has anyone done research looking at some of these risk factors that might predispose a woman to depression from tamoxifen or another hormonal therapy so that at least she and her doctor could have that conversation before they started on she started on the medicine? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Um, that is not a literature that I'm that familiar with. But what I can tell you is that some of the risk factors are first and foremost a prior depression. That what we know about depression in general is that it tends to um, be recurrent, not in everyone, but if you've had one episode of major depression, whether you've got cancer or not, there's probably about a 50-50 chance that you'll have another episode of major depression at some time in your life. If you've had a second episode, the likelihood goes up even more that you might have a third and so on. And so I think that the most important kind of risk factor from my point of view is whether someone has a prior difficulty with some kind of a mood problem, either major depression or bipolar disorder. I think other risk factors can include prior trauma, uh, prior uh, experiences with substance misuse or um, alcoholism uh, and um, and I think that there are some other um, kind of factors related to the degree of um, impairment in body image and body integrity that can happen with cancer. So I think that, you know, there are lots of very difficult challenges that go along with mastectomy, reconstructive surgery and uh, some of the physical changes that can happen with radiation therapy and so on. You've, you've talked about major depression, depressive symptoms, some of the other things. If somebody is feeling down, is there a way that she or he can sort of decide that for themselves? I guess what I'm wondering is how does somebody know when they need to see a doctor or do they always need to see a doctor? I think that very often people can tell themselves that they're off their game, that they're not feeling right. They, you know, the, the, the most common symptoms are ones that are easy to find online and easy to find in any kind of textbook description of depression. So there are things like sadness, tearfulness, loss of interest, loss of motivation, poor self-esteem, feeling helpless or hopeless. Um, what a lot of patients tell me when they're in, in a depression is that they kind of really have very little hope that they will be able to feel any different. They feel stuck and like they're going to keep feeling like that going forward. They may have less interest in 
things that normally bring them pleasure or joy. There's a term called anhedonia that we use, which is the inability to experience pleasure. So if someone were to tell me that under normal circumstances, they would light up when their grandchildren come over for breakfast on a Sunday morning, yet the prospect of that seems overwhelming and doesn't bring them any anticipatory pleasure or joy, that might be something that you would, you would look at um, as, a, as a signal. Um, certainly, people who are very depressed can have thoughts that life isn't worth living, that maybe they or their family members would be better off if, if the patient were, be- were dead, that everybody else would be better off, that they wouldn't be a burden to other people, or have very specific thoughts about doing something to harm themselves or actually end their life. So I would think that anyone who has significant um, thoughts or plans to take their life is a signal of serious depression until proven otherwise. Does serious depression always or almost always lead to these suicidal thoughts or are there some people that just experience this sort of suffocating depression but don't think about ending their life? In fact, most people who are depressed don't have um, specific plans or thoughts of committing suicide. So it's, it's a common symptom, but it does not happen in everyone. It does not happen in most people. And so the, the data that we have on this in the cancer world is that if, and and I'm not even talking about whether there's depression present or not, let's just talk about cancer patients as a general group. Um, There's a group uh, from England, first in Scotland and now in Oxford, England, um, and they have studied this very carefully. And if you look at an outpatient cancer clinic and you look at how common is depression and how common are suicidal thoughts, what you'll see is that about 10% of outpatients with cancer will endorse having some thoughts that they might be better, or might, they might be better off dead or of hurting themselves in some way. In follow-up careful interviews, about a third of those people have more worrisome thoughts about suicide. So even if someone has thoughts of death, My feeling is that if you have a serious cancer diagnosis, certainly if you have a metastatic cancer diagnosis, it would be expected to have thoughts of death. That doesn't mean that you're thinking about going out and taking your life. So I think it's very common to have thoughts of death. It's a different matter and more concerning if someone has specific thoughts about wanting to take their own life. How? is major depression treated? I, I know there are medicines and I'm hoping you can talk about some, you know, about those, but also if there are any uh, more complementary therapies, maybe things that people can do at home alongside the medicines or is really medicine the major, the major treatment? I think, you know, I, I clearly have a bias. I'm a psychiatrist by training and I see a lot of patients with very severe depression. And so in the setting of major depression, I do think that medications are the mainstay of treating that depression. And in some cases, um, treatments other than 
antidepressants, including in severe cases, if it's a psychotic depression, if people have lost touch with reality, if they have delusions or paranoia, that then I think that electroconvulsive therapy is actually the most effective treatment we have for extremely severe depressions. But as we've been talking about this, I think your listeners will recognize that depressive symptoms exist along a very broad spectrum. And so for mild or moderate depressions, I don't think that necessarily antidepressants are um, necessary in all cases or the way to go. So initially, I would focus on talk therapy, group therapy, um, uh, changes in diet, exercise interventions, um, meditation, mindfulness uh, treatments. There are some herbal treatments that in some studies for milder depression have been shown to be helpful, like St. John's wort. I would just caution patients to make sure that anytime you take over-the-counter herbal remedies, you talk about it with your um, healthcare team to make sure there aren't any drug-drug interactions that you need to worry about. But I think that when you take a giant step back, it shouldn't be one or the other. The question in my mind is, what tools do we have available that might help someone feel better? And all of the things being equal, being educated in my mind is being better than, is better than being ignorant about your circumstances. Being active is better than being passive. Being engaged in your own care is better than being disengaged. Exercising more is better than sitting on the couch. Eating a better diet is better than kind of just, you know, letting yourself go and eating a lot of junk food. Um, and those kinds of things, and I think it all can help. So I don't think it's just a matter of taking a pill. And then the one other comment I'll just make about medications is that across many different conditions in mental health, the data are very clear that medicines plus talk therapy are better than either of those um, interventions alone for serious depression. Finally, as sort of a, a, a maybe a three-step guide or a beginning guide for somebody, if they have been diagnosed with cancer, in our case specifically breast cancer, and they think they have major depression or they are having some thoughts of harming themselves, um, what is there a process or is there a series of steps that you would recommend that they go through to, to get some help? So if there's a single message that I'd like to kind of leave you and your listeners with, it's, it's, it's the following, that depression in the context of breast cancer is very common, it is very consequential, and it's treatable. So for those reasons, I think it's really critical that people not suffer in silence. So when I say it's consequential, what do I mean? I mean that there's very compelling evidence that when people are depressed, they're less likely to take their medicines, their cancer medicines the way they're supposed to. They're more likely to miss appointments. They're more likely to make emergency room visits for pain and other symptoms. They're more likely to stay in the hospital longer. They're more likely to be readmitted to the hospital and there's some evidence that just the presence of having depression, depressive symptoms and cancer means that survival isn't as good as if you have that cancer without depression. So there are a lot of reasons 
to identify the depression and get it treated professionally. Um, what I would do first is that if you're in the United States at one of the major um, kind of cancer centers, there's a very good chance that somewhere along the line in your treatment, someone, a nurse or one of the doctors is going to ask you about your level of distress. It's called psychosocial distress screening. You know, right now, how anxious or depressed or worried are you or how much overall distress you have related to finances or physical pain or whatever. When people ask you those questions, I would answer them honestly. And um, so that kind of screening can identify uh, patients in a more systematic way. If that doesn't happen, or if you're not particularly comfortable doing it that way, then I would absolutely talk with your nurse or with your physician or with a social worker in the um, in the cancer center or with a family member. And a lot of times I hear from spouses, children, loved ones, so-and-so is really off their game and I'd really love it if someone could talk to them about it. And so I think the first step is just simply saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling right and I would like some help with that because what breaks my heart is when there are clearly identifiable things that can make a huge difference. And so we haven't talked about medical causes of depression either, but sometimes after people have had radiation to their chest or neck area, they can have hypothyroidism. And if your thyroid hormone is low, you may present looking like you're depressed. What you need is not an antidepressant, not psychotherapy, not a big diet change. What you need is thyroid hormone replacement and your energy and mood might be better. So there can be a lot of reasons for why you might be feeling down and blue, get it checked out like you would any other symptom. Thank you so much. I think this has been a great podcast on a very difficult topic. I really appreciate your interest in time. Thank you.